Now, yesterday, as you heard, we were somewhat on the negative side, though I think there were some positive things that had to be said along the way by way of contrast. But today we're going to begin to talk about theology in counseling from a biblical viewpoint rather than from the viewpoint that we aired yesterday concerning those three eminent theologians that we discussed, Sigmund Freud, Carl Rogers, and B.F. Skinner. Today we're going to talk about good theology, not bad theology. And the place to begin, it seems to me, is at the beginning. I have had uh, literally hundreds of pastors' Bible conferences over the years. And as I've gone to those conferences, I've always opened up the conferences to an hour or two or more of questions and answers at the end. And invariably, I don't think I can remember a conference in in which it did not happen. Invariably, one question arises, and that's this. How... Do you counsel an unbeliever? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Rather than have you ask me a hundred questions by a hundred of you outside of the lecture series itself, since we won't have Q&A here in this series, I will address the question. You will not have to ask it. We'll deal with it right at the outset. Now, is there anything different about counseling a believer and an unbeliever? That's the the fundamental issue that we're going to deal with. And the answer to that question is this. There is all the difference in the world. There is all the difference that there is in Jesus Christ. You cannot approach a believer and an unbeliever in the same way. Your resources differ. Your goals must be different. Everything is affected by the fact that a person is a believer or an unbeliever. Now, there's one thing that every counseling system, including the biblical one, agrees upon. They all agree on this one point, that we're out to change the counselee. If you're not out to change, to affect some kind of a change in the counselee, then you're not counseling. There's no purpose, no meaning to the whole business. But the question is, what sort of change? Are we out to effect? And that is our concern here this morning. The Freudians tell us we are involved in depth. You've got to get your tongue stuck out and get close to the mic to get that TH across to the back of the room, especially with the pipes banging. We are out to do depth counseling. And often you hear people say, well, pastor, I know you might be able to handle some minor marriage problems, 
or something like that. But this problem that I'm talking about is too deep for you. Uh, I think we had better get more professional help, end quote. I really am disturbed when I hear those words. I get disturbed because, as I hope you will see before the morning is over, the Freudians do not really do depth counseling. And it is impossible for anyone to do counseling at a level of depth unless he is doing Christian counseling. It is only the Christian counselor when he is doing counseling that is truly Christian who gets to a level of true depth. That was a misfire. Everybody else is working on the surface rather than at a level of depth. We've got to get you awake some way or this early in the morning, you know. Now, let's turn to Matthew 15:19 and do a little theology. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking in this passage, and among other things that he has said, he makes this astounding statement. From the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual sins, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. From the heart. Now, the question that we want to ask ourselves as we begin is, what does Jesus mean by this heart of which he speaks? I have discovered that in Western culture we have an entirely different view of the heart than the view that is set forth in the scriptures. We have a Roman Valentine's Day view of the heart. We have the idea that the heart means emotions or feelings. We say, I love you with all my heart. And we mean it's palpitating. I, I've just got all these gushy feelings for you. But that isn't what the Bible means by heart at all. And the trouble is, is that we in our modern day when we read the Bible and read the word heart, pour all those thousands years worth of culture and thinking in Western society, those nearly 2,000 years worth of thinking, into that word, and then get out of the Bible things that were never there until we ourselves poured them in. We must come to learn what the Bible really says about the heart. If we're going to understand this statement or a hundred others in which this word appears. We dare not equate heart with emotion or heart with feeling as we do in our Western culture in ordinary speech when we come to interpret the Bible because the heart was not thought of that way. 
As a matter of fact, in the Bible, if you're talking about feeling and really focusing on the fact that it is feeling or emotion, the anatomy that is focused upon is not the heart, but something a little bit lower, the gut. We read about bowels of compassion, feelings of compassion, deep feelings of compassion, bowels of compassion. And you know, that is really a lot more accurate because most of our sensation of feeling, though now and then we get a little palpitation here and there, uh, we, we don't have that as often. Most of our feeling and sensation of emotion is in the gut. You get on an elevator, and it's one of the old-fashioned kind that isn't quite so easy on you when it comes to a stop after 94 uh, floors of falling as fast as it can, and it comes to a stop, and it goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Where do you feel it? In your heart? Maybe a little, but mainly, ah, oh, down here. That's where the emotions are, and that's what the biblical writers understood. And so when they wanted to focus on emotion as feeling, they worked on the spot where you really felt the emotion most prominently. Now, <clears throat> what does heart mean if it doesn't mean feelings and emotion as it does in our modern culture? Well, Jesus is saying that the problem that people have, the problems of evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and sexual sins and thefts and false testimonies and blasphemies, and this is just the beginning of a long list that could be extended, it's just a sampling. The problems that people have come from this heart. And if we're going to help people, we've got to recognize the source of their problems. He's saying the heart is that source. What does he mean when he says that? Well, it certainly isn't what the average preacher and just about every preacher sitting in this room, including the one standing up in front of you, has said at times in the past somewhere in the pulpit, perpetuating this wrong view of the heart. It certainly isn't the idea of not only head knowledge but also heart knowledge as though head, intellect, thought were separated from heart in the Bible. That is a totally wrong and unbiblical concept. I have been involved in that in the past, and so have you, admit it. You stood up there and talked about head knowledge and heart knowledge. Well, that's unbiblical. Don't ever do it again. There is no such distinction in the Bible. The head is never, not once, not ever, not once, set over against the heart in the Bible. In order to understand heart, you've got to stop that kind of thinking entirely. And you've got to start doing a biblical kind of thinking. What is set over against the heart in the Bible? Well, in this very passage, you see a little of it in verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Lips are set over against heart. Not head, but lips. And in Romans 10, you read about a man who believes 
who speaks with his mouth but also has to believe in his heart. There has to be a concordance between the mouth and the heart. And so you have a mouth standing over against the heart. And in other places you read about the hands over against the heart. And then you read such passages as this, where we see that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. So you get words like lips and mouth and hands and outward appearance opposed to the word heart. That's what's set over against the heart. Not the head against the heart, but the outward manifestation. What a man does with his hands. What he says with his mouth or his lips. How he appears to be on the outside, the outer appearance. That's what's set over against the heart in the Bible. Not the head, but the outer man that can be seen and heard by others. In contrast, when discussing the heart in parallelism in the Old Testament in the Psalms and in other places where Hebrew poetry appears, you find the inner man and the spirit and the nephesh, the soul, all set in parallelism with the heart. And you read in 1 Peter, the third chapter, about the woman who should not just change her outer appearance for the sake of her unsaved husband, but should beautify the hidden person of the heart, generic use of man there ought to be translated person, the hidden person of the heart. Now what does heart then mean? As you read about heart which appears all through the Old and New Testament, you read about the heart as the place where we talk to ourselves. Here is the fool saying in his heart there is no God, talking to himself down inside about it. You read about the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Surely, that's why we can't separate head from heart, because it is viewed as intellectual in the Bible when we read about decisions that are made in the heart, thoughts of the heart intents of the heart, plans of the heart. All these concepts and all these words are used in relationship to heart in the Bible. So the heart in the Bible is not the emotions. If you're focusing on the emotions, it's the gut. But the heart in the Bible is something entirely different. What is it? It is the inner person that you are. It is that person 
that inner life that you live, that inner life that you live before God and yourself alone, that nobody else can know anything about, that nobody else can see or hear. It is what you really are down deep inside. It is what you really think, not what others think you think, or you say to others that you think, or your actions misrepresent you as thinking to others when you really don't. It is the inner life that you live before God and others. And it's out of that inner life, out of what you really are, that conversation with yourself and that life that you live with yourself constantly, day by day and moment by moment, down deep inside, it's out of that life that what you are outwardly finally shows in that outward manifestation. You can deceive for just so long, but eventually the sexual sins come and the thefts and the false testimonies and the blasphemies are found out. But for a long while you might deceive people. The Bible talks about deceit. And deceit in the Bible is always talked about when it's discussed in detail as being a discontinuity between what the person is in his heart and what he is outwardly. In that passage that's so wrongly used from Proverbs by so many counselors who don't do their homework, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And then they go to make a philosophical treatise or a psychological analysis of man from that verse. If you read the context, and believe it or not, that's one of the few passages in Proverbs that has a context. And if you read it in terms of a modern translation where it comes out clearly, you'll see that what he's talking about in that passage is when you go to eat with somebody, particularly a ruler who offers you a lot of goodies, you go to eat with somebody, and he says, go ahead, have some more, have some more. And he's thinking, boy, I hope that guy doesn't take any more because I want that for lunch tomorrow. He's saying, it's not what he says outwardly from his lips. You realize that he might be thinking something entirely different in his heart. That's what he really is like. It's not as a man in his heart is in his heart, so is he. We're not to draw all kinds of philosophical truths from that passage it's saying that this man has a discontinuity between what he says to you and what he's really thinking in his heart as a matter of fact the only person who never had a discontinuity the only person who was ever unified in his life throughout the whole of his life so that heart an outward appearance, heart and hands, heart and lips, heart and mouth, heart and the outer man, always agreed was the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of the rest of us has some discontinuity because we are false people at some point. We're all sinners. But Jesus Christ always had unity of heart and outer man. And that's what a Christian needs to become more and more, a person unified on the outside and the inside. So that when we hear what he says, he doesn't have to add an oath to what he says. He can just let his yea be yea 
and it's nay be nay, and we know that it's exactly what he really means inside as well as outside. He's genuine through and through. That's heart, as the Bible looks at heart. Now, it's from that heart that our problems that we deal with in counseling come. And as we think about this difficulty, the fact that an unbeliever, and that is our topic today, we are going to get to that topic eventually, that an unbeliever has a heart that has never been transformed by the Spirit of God a heart in which the Spirit is not at work, a heart of stone rather than a heart of flesh, a heart that is impervious to the Word of God. He cannot know spiritual truths, as 1 Corinthians 2 teaches us, because they are spiritually discerned. We realize that there's some difficulty in counseling an unbeliever. Did you ever notice that 1 Corinthians 2 passage rather closely? We won't spend a lot of time with it. I'll just refer to it, but go back to it and study it in detail. He's saying, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has there entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him but they are revealed to us by his spirit. He's not talking about what we get in heaven, though it's enlarged there, of course, but he's talking about what the believer has now and what the unbeliever now lacks. The unbeliever's eyes and ears and his heart have all been opened by regeneration through the things of the Spirit of God. But the unbeliever's eyes and ears and heart are all closed to those things. Right this moment, there is some of the most horrendous rock music being played in this auditorium. I'm ashamed of you for having it here, Chuck. And there are some of the filthiest television programs you ever saw right here in this room. Fortunately, we can't see or hear any of this because we don't have a TV or a radio up here. But all the impulses are here in this room. We had a TV here, we could turn it on and we could see what eyes cannot see. We could hear what ears cannot hear. But it's all here. It's here right now. All the radio waves, all the TV waves, they're running all through this room. All we have to do is to bring in the set, the receiving set, in order to demonstrate it. So it really isn't Chuck's fault after all. Now listen. That's how it is with an unbeliever. All these good things, not lousy, rotten stuff, but all these good things from God that he has in his word and that are around us in his world and that we can see through eyes that have been opened and that we can understand through hearts that have been made, hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. All these good things are around us everywhere from God. The unbeliever doesn't see them, and he doesn't hear them. 
because his heart is unable to do so. So there's a problem if we want to counsel an unbeliever. We want to change him in accordance with biblical truth. We want him to come to love Jesus Christ. We want his actions to stem from a new kind of heart. We want him to do what God wants him to do. But how do you get an unbeliever to respond when he doesn't have the Spirit of God, God's receiving set? What is the whole purpose of counseling for a believer, for a Christian? It's the same purpose as the Bible. And Christ summed up the purposes of the Bible as two. He said the whole business, the whole law and prophets are summed up in this. To love God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength to get them all together from all the different Gospels. And to love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, there aren't three commandments there. There are only two. All the psychologizers want to bring in a third commandment, to love yourself. And so they bring in Abraham Maslow's whole triangle and pyramid it whatever you want to call it, and say, you can't love others and you can't love God until first you learn how to love yourself. Nonsense! Jesus specifically said on these two commandments, not three, these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Don't put a third, even more basic commandment in there upon which the other two are conditioned when Jesus clearly said on these two Two commandments hang all the law that are. We don't have to be taught how to love ourselves. We don't have to be commanded how to love ourselves. We already love ourselves. And he's saying, use the same kind of intensity, the same kind of concern, the same kind of, of uh, ability to forgive and all the rest of it that you have with yourself. Use that when you deal with your neighbor. But love for God and love for a neighbor, love is what the Bible is going to produce. The aim of the, this authoritative commandment, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, is love. That's the aim. That's the goal. That's the objective that we have in view. But listen to this in Romans 5, 5. We need not be ashamed of hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How does a person get the kind of love that God alone can give him, God's love, that will enable him to love God in response and love his neighbor as he should? How does a person get that kind of love in his heart when he has had a heart prior to that that has been the source of all sorts of unloving things, adultery, blasphemy, thefts, and so on. All the things that are contrary to the love of God. How does a heart get changed? The love of God, God's love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. But not apart from the Spirit in a heart. Well, you see, you're building a case for the fact that you can't counsel an unbeliever. Hang on.
there are some people, some people who believe from all, with all their heart, the whole inner man. They believe that liberalism is a terrible, horrible force in our world, theological liberalism. The denial of the word of God is the standard faith and practice. No absolutes. No place from which to move. Only subjective human reason and humanism resulting from it. And I agree with them. And these pastors get up into their pulpits and they preach with vigor and they say, Listen, congregation, I'm not here to reform you. God didn't send me to be a reformer to change you on the outside. I'm here with a message that will transform you. A message that will change you from within. And that will lead, therefore, to a change on the outside. And I can only sit in my pew as I hear that kind of preaching and say, Amen, brother, sick him. But those same preachers, having preached so well against the liberal view of reforming a man, changing the furniture, rearranging the furniture on the outside, the outward appearance, without touching the man at a level of depth, having preached very well, I'll, I'll not breathe so heavily the next time. <laughs> Must have knocked it over. <laughs> These men having preached so well against that humanistic doctrine that man has the ability to change himself from the outside and that's adequate in God's sight, if there is a God, these same men get down out of their pulpits, go into their counseling rooms, and try to change unbelievers without talking about the gospel. There they seem to think that you can reform people on the outside and still be in accordance with God's will. What a gross and terrible inconsistency this is! If it's true for the pulpit, it's true for the counseling room. There's no disjunction between those two ministries. They are two parts of one ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word is a ministry that says, I will preach the gospel publicly and I will minister it from the Word house to house. Teaching and confronting every man. Paul said in, in Colossians 1.28, these are not two separate ministries. The ministry of counseling and the ministry, the public ministry of teaching and the word of God are two pieces of the same pie. And we've got to see it that way. And if it's right that God did not send us to reform men while preaching, it is just as right that he did not send us to reform men on the outside while counseling them. God never sent me with that kind of a mission into this world. And when I try to change a man in the name of God, 
whose heart has not been changed, to change him on the outside and get him to behave differently and try to get him reformed in some way so that he does things a little differently and gets a little relief in this world in some way or other, apart from a transformation of his heart before God, I not only misrepresent God to him, but I set him up for a hard fall in the not-too-distant future. Because when that goes sour, as it inevitably will, just as his last practices went sour, then he'll say, well, I tried God's way. It really wasn't, but that's what he thinks it is. And God let me down too. My friends, I would rather see a saloon on a corner than to see a liberal church on that corner. Because at least the fellow who lies around in the gutter knows he's got a problem. But the liberal church is a place where people are put to sleep about their sin. I don't want to see either one. But if I had to take a choice, I think I'd go that way. And we've got to get the liberalism out of our conservative studies where counseling is being done because we a lot of us are liberals in our counseling if not in our preaching <gasps> you say doesn't that mean that you can't counsel an unbeliever well of course that's what it means that's what I've been telling you You say, you took over three-fourths of our time this morning just to tell us we couldn't do it? Well, I hope I did a few other things along the way. But that's right. However, and here's the good news, however, there is something you can do for an unbeliever. You say, well, if, if I can't counsel him, what can I do for him? You can pre-counsel him. You say, pre-counsel him? What does that mean? What is pre-counseling? That's the word that we use with him. The word we use among ourselves is evangelize him. <laughs> Don't tell him that. When he hears the word evangelize, he thinks about people rolling down some kind of a sawdust aisle or twining snakes around his neck or something like that. So use, be as wise as a serpent but harmless as a dove and use words like pre-counsel, which make it clear that you're not counseling. When an unbeliever comes in, I say to him, after it's become clear that he's not a Christian, well, we cannot counsel. There is something we must do first. We must pre-counsel you. And I make it very clear that we haven't started counseling. I say all the answers to all your problems are over there on the other side of that wall. God's got all the answers. 
And when we get to counseling, if we do, we'll be on the other side of the wall doing it. But right now, we're over on this side. This is where you are over here. You're not over there. You're on this side. Those things that God has in answer to your problems are not available to you. I make it very clear that counseling has not yet begun. And it won't begin until we get on the other side of the wall. And then I say to him, and the way through the wall to get to those answers is through the door, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Then I go on to explain the gospel and talk about repentance and faith. The cross and the resurrection. Well, it's very important to make it clear to an unbeliever that you have not begun to counsel him. You see, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And this issue of the heart cannot be avoided. It is an essential theological issue that we must understand, that we must come to grips with, that a man with a heart of stone a man without the receiving set from God cannot receive God's truth and cannot change inwardly at a level of depth. Hold on to it. <laughs> and all we're going to settle for, and nothing less, is change at a level of depth. We cannot settle for anything less in God's name without misrepresenting him, and letting down the counselee heart. Well now, what I've described for you in this problem-centered evangelistic approach that I've tried to set forth constitutes a distinct division between counseling and evangelism. And I believe that to be so. Because counseling, as the scriptures represent it, is a matter of putting off the old ways and putting on God's new ways. Or it is a part of the process of sanctification, whereby a person day by day becomes more like Christ and less like he used to be. So that he is putting off sin and putting on righteousness. He's turning his back on one thing and turning his face to something new and fresh and righteous and holy. He's yielding his members no longer as he did and yielding his members now to righteousness leading to more righteousness. It's the process of sanctification that we're involved in when we get involved in counseling. That's theological. We have to understand it theologically. And evangelism must come first, successful evangelism, before we can enter into the process of sanctification. An unbeliever cannot grow. He doesn't have life. How can he grow? And so it goes. Well, you say, what happens when an unbeliever will not believe? What happens when he doesn't trust Christ? I don't go on to counsel him. When I realized in that last session that it's going to be the last session and that we're not going to get any further along the line, I say to him, maybe 15, 20 times throughout that last session, as many as I can squeeze in without making it so obvious that it becomes obnoxious, 
I repeat, and you may have a different verse, I repeat that passage from Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. I say to him things like this, and this is condensed a bit, of course. I say, when you go out of here, not having trusted Christ, you're going to go out there and you're going to find out that without him, the way of the transgressor is hard. And when you get out there and you're bouncing along life's road and you find out the way of the transgressor is hard, I hope you'll remember that word and you'll say to yourself, hey, the way of the transgressor is hard. <laughs> now it's condensed, as I say. <laughs> but you get the idea. I keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it so that when he rides off into the sun, I think that's the new presidential uh, metaphor. <laughs> As he rides off into the sunset, I have placed a scriptural bear beneath his saddle. And I believe the word of God works. And not all of them by any means, but I've had people come back in six months or a year, and there they are again, and I say, hey, what brought you back? Good to see you, but what brought you back? And he said, I found out the way of the transgressor is hard. One fellow told me, he said, I was riding down a road and it was bumpy as it could be. And he said, that's my life, the way of the transgressor is hard. And he bumped back over and he got in the phone booth and he called up and made an appointment. It doesn't always happen that way. But leave him with some kind of a scriptural word. But let him know. Counseling begins after a person goes through the door and not before. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you have made clear to us the source of man's difficulties. All the problems we face in counseling stem from the heart. And we are not willing to settle for something at a lesser depth, something on the surface. But, oh Lord, we want to penetrate into the heart of man with a message, with that transforming power of the Spirit that changes a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We pray that you will transform those with whom we deal and help us to be faithful counselors of the word, doing evangelism where there is no transformation yet, not misrepresenting what you have to offer to men or failing them by merely rearranging their lives on the outside. Help us to see the importance of a proper theological stance toward all that we do. We ask in Christ's name, amen.